these words, the gospel of our Lord according to Mark. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages in Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others, Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering to be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, raise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory with the Father and with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, thank you for welcoming me into your community today. I bring you greetings from Memorial Baptist Church just down the road um, in North Arlington. And I also bring you greetings as the second vice president of Virginia Baptists. And I am, have the honor of serving as second vice president this year. And as I sit on the coordinating council of the Mid-Atlantic Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, I bring you greetings from them. And uh, with all these hats, the biggest hat um, that I wear um, with, to you today is uh, that of neighbor. As we are in neighboring communities um, and in our geography. And also, we have neighboring partners in mission. As we have partners in India and um, very close to where your partner works. And also, we have partners in Liberia. And um, so, we are neighbors in many ways. Your um, church has generously shared a uh, camp sponsor with the boys in my, my youth group, which was quite brave on their part, and uh, they did not know what they were getting into. So we have many uh, connections, and it is a gift um, for me to know Katie and Meg, and their encouragement and partnership in the gospel is uh, huge in my own life. So I'm thankful to be here. And um, I'm thankful that you have welcomed me. And now as we come to this time of listening together, will you pray with me?
Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. For God, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder how you are this second Sunday of Lent, how your practices are going or how the things that you have given up are going. Maybe you are um, getting the hang of things, remembering, oh yeah, I meant to do that this morning. Uh, first off, I'll do that tomorrow. Or maybe like you, or like me, rather, uh, you uh, have eaten something and then thought, oh, I gave that up. <laughs> um, sometimes our Lenten practices take a while to get in um, to our, our rhythm of life. Um, and, you know, uh, we have moments of, of turning, of checking in, and um, of, of seeing how our journey is going. And that is where we find the disciples in Jesus today. Um, my family is a walking people. And we take walks together um, through neighborhoods, in places where uh, we are new, um, and in places that are very familiar to us. Uh, <clears throat> it has become a practice for me, uh, and a practice in, that I take whenever I am trying to make a decision, or even if I'm writing a sermon or, or just thinking about something. i got to go for a walk. Um, and it is in a walk that I connect with the geography around me, and God speaks to me. And so we find the disciples and Jesus on a walk today. They are on their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, you may not have um, your geography map just readily available in your head, and as one who is quite tied to the GPS, I had to study the map um, quite a bit in preparation for this. So, here's a lay of the land. Um, here's Israel, right? And there's the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jesus has been up here in the north west part of, um, of Israel in a place called Galilee. So you have the Sea of Galilee, lots of exciting things have been happening. Jesus has been feeding thousands, healing people, casting out demons, walking on water, stilling the storm. It's been an exciting time over here in Galilee. But now he is moving from Galilee up to the northeast to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And now Caesarea Philippi is at the base of a mountain called Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon is in between Israel and present-day Lebanon. Um, and over here is Syria. So they're at the base of this mountain in Caesarea Philippi. And down this valley, you can see Jerusalem. Well, it's like a couple of days' walk. But you can, it's the way to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is moving from Galilee and his works of power to a holding place in Caesarea Philippi, and it is a turning for him. He, for the rest of the Gospel of Mark, has turned his face toward Jerusalem and toward what will happen there, toward his death, toward his suffering, and his resurrection. And so Jesus is making this geographical turn in his own life, and he is trying to get those wily disciples to turn with him. And so it is on this walk to the holding place and to the turning point that Jesus asks his disciples, because he never wastes time with the disciples, 
do the people say that I am? It's the ease-in question. It's always easier to talk about someone else, isn't it? Who do other people say I am? And they're excited to talk about, well, they say you're John the Baptist or Elijah or like a great prophet. <clears throat> and then Jesus pauses and says, and who do you say I am? And I wonder if there was a pause while the disciples checked in with themselves and and uh, there must have been a, a quite a pause because it was Peter who answered. It was Peter who was always willing to answer. And he, in a moment of, of realization, says, well, you are the Messiah. You are the one who is coming to save us, has come to save us. The one sent by God. It's a remarkable statement. And then Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. Not only does he say, shh, don't tell anybody. He says, I rebuke you from telling anybody. The word that is used there, the sternly, um, whenever he sternly told them, is the same word that is used for when Jesus called out to the wind and told it to be still. It's the same word that Jesus uses to call the demons out of the demon-possessed. It was with that word Jesus tells them not to say a word about who he is. Why? Why does Jesus do this? Don't you find that sometimes Jesus is really confusing? <laughs> but then Jesus proceeds to tell them plainly to their face what he must face as he turns and looks to Jerusalem. He says he will suffer, and he will be rejected by the religious establishment. He will be killed, and he will rise again. And Peter, the one who just said, you are the Messiah, takes Jesus aside and like one would rebuke a child. He rebukes Jesus to his face. He says, no way, no way is this what's going to happen. What was Peter thinking? Rebuking his Messiah. But can you really blame Peter how many of you have been watching the Olympics? Yeah, I've been glued whenever I've had the chance. Now, just imagine you are an Olympian, and you have done all the hard work to get to this moment. And the Olympics are, well, they're the Olympics. And you have won all of the things leading up to it, and now you are on your gold medal run. And you have acquired a coach who is known for making things happen. And he definitely has made things happen with you. And so you are at the top of the slope, and your coach comes over to give you a pep talk. And he says, okay, here's what we need to do. You're going to go out there, and you're going to leave it all on the slope, and you're going to lose. And you're going to give that medal to someone else. What? No, this is the gold medal run. Why would you do that? 
Or imagine in your business, you have a board meeting and you have been crushing it in your, in your work. You have been making proposals, winning proposals. Your um, profits are out, out the roof. And you have this meeting and your boss comes in and he says, okay, we've been really crushing it. And y'all have been doing great. And here's what we're going to do from here on out. We're going to give away all our profits. We're going to build up the competition. And we are going to sell ourselves out. What? Or it's election night. And your party looks like it's winning. And then your candidate says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to lose this election. We're just going to give it up. The Messiah was the one who was supposed to come in power to speak to the powers that ruled the day, the ones that were oppressing people, and the Messiah was to put them on top, not the bottom. And here they are at just the beginning with Jesus. He had done all these things. All these things which would make him like the perfect Messiah. He could heal people. Just think of that in battle. He could feed people. Just think what that would mean. He could walk on water, still storms. And yet here he says, what's next for him is suffering, rejection, and death. And rising again. But that part is lost in the suffering. And so Peter rebukes him. And so might we. But Jesus turns. He looks at his disciples, those he is leading. And he turns and he gives just as strong a rebuke to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are not thinking the way that God thinks. You are thinking the way man thinks. And so this is the wilderness temptation in Mark. Mark, he just flies through things. And whenever Mark got to the temptation in the wilderness, he was like, Jesus went to the wilderness, he was tempted and he came out. But here is the strongest temptation to go the easy way, to go the way of power. And Jesus rejects it. And instead, he calls Peter to do what he has always called him and all the disciples to do is get behind me and follow. Bonhoeffer says, if it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a false God who corresponds with me, is agreeable with me. But if it is God who says where he will be, the place is the cross of Christ. And so, this is a reality check for the disciples. It is a turning point. Is this who you really want to follow? Is this the Messiah that you want? 
Because Jesus goes on to talk about what it means to follow him. He steps back into the disciples and invites the crowds to him, and he says, if anyone wants to follow me, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The message puts it this way. Anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me, and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way, my way, to saving yourself, your true self. What good would it do to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? And so Jesus says that the way of the disciple is the way of the Messiah as he really is. And that is to deny self, to let go of control, of clinging to your life, and let God lead and take you where God wants to take you. You're no longer in control of your life or even of your Messiah. The world says, find yourself by achieving, by getting, by adding to your resume. Jesus says, lose yourself and find yourself. Find yourself in Jesus. Lent is a small practice of the bigger practice of our lives. And if you have any question about what letting go of control is, he says, take up your cross This would not have been an abstract concept, or nor would the people hearing it have heard it as a metaphor. The people, the Jews um, of first century, if you brought them into our time today and they saw all the crosses on our walls and on our jewelry, they would be appalled. They lived in the shadow of a cross. I think often I just think of the three crosses on the hill, and that was like a really horrible moment, but... Spartacus, a hundred years before Jesus, was a rebel, who le- a slave who led a revolt, and many died in the final battle, but 6,000 followers were crucified. 6,000. And then just a few years before Jesus was born, a guy named Judas ben Hezekiah led a revolt against the Romans, And they crushed it because that's what they did. And 2,000 rebels were crucified. The Romans kept peace by way of violence, by crushing revolts. And crucifixion was reserved for the rebels and for the slaves. But they would crucify them on the road. They would crucify them at the city entrance so that all the other people could walk by and take stock of whether they wanted to end up there or whether their miserable lives were just fine. It was a warning. It was a scandal. It was shameful. 
anyone that heard take up your cross would have the feeling of horror and shame. They would leave the people on the crosses for days. Sometimes families would come and take them home to bury them. Other times they would leave them for the vultures until there was nothing left. It was shocking and scandalous and horrifying. And, and crucifixion had a social meaning. The Romans were saying, we are superior and you are vastly inferior. It had a political meaning. Romans were in charge. You and your nation count for nothing. It had a theological meaning. The gods of Rome and the son of that god, Caesar, rule the day over your gods. And so when Jesus says, take up your cross, it is a turning point. There's a social implication, a political and a theological, and very least, your very life. And then he says, follow me. And it is the call of Jesus from the very beginning to do what he did. To learn what the life of taking up the cross looked like. Follow the one who suffers. It is a life of paradox. And so we need a leader. And we need a Messiah. To grasp life is to lose it. To let go of life is to gain it. To give your life over for the love of Jesus and the love of the world and the good news that Jesus is bringing is to save your life. What is true profit? What can you gain? If you try to gain the world, you'll lose your soul. If you reject this shame that Jesus calls us to, to, of suffering with him, then you will find that in the next life you will face greater shame as God is ashamed of you, of me. But if you take on the shame, this cross of Jesus, you will find in the next life that God will not be ashamed of you. I think in the end, or maybe in the beginning rather, when you love someone, when you love Jesus, you cannot protect yourself. To truly love someone is to open yourself and to make yourself vulnerable. And so when we are Jesus's, we cannot cling to life or protect all that we have or don't have or grasp at the things around us. But we make ourselves vulnerable in trust and in love and we take up our cross. And we stretch our arms out to accept the love of Jesus and to die to ourselves. To join the losers so that we gain life. Because after the suffering and the death, Jesus will rise again. And so will we. And there we will find life. 
And even in this moment of stretching our arms out, we find life that is different, that is abundant, and that is free. Bonhoeffer reminds us that when God calls us, he calls us to die. What does this sound like? What does this look like? It looks like Isaiah 58. This is the kind of fast that I am after to break the chains of injustice. To get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed, to cancel debts. I'm interested in seeing you do this, sharing your food with the hungry, inviting the homeless poor into your houses, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this and your lights will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. And your righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. If you rid, get rid of unfair practices, uh, quit blaming victims, quit gossiping about other people's sins, if you are generous with the hungry and start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. You will always show, I will always show you where to go, and I'll give you full life in the emptiest places, firm muscles and strong bones. You will be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of past lives to build anew, rebuild the foundations from out of your past. You'll be known as those who fix anything, restore old ruins, rebuild and renovate, and make the community livable again. And so here is the call. To follow the one who came to serve and not to serve, to be served. The one who spends his life pulling near to God and going out to others. The one who did not consider equality with life, with God, something to be grasped, but became a servant, became obedient to death, even death on that shameful cross. God's invitation today is to you. Who do you say Jesus is? And will you come and follow. As we respond, will you pray with me? And I invite you to hold out your hands. <coughs> and to make a fist. As we have listened to your call, oh Jesus. Spirit, change us. As we think about those things which we are grasping and clinging to, as we open our hands to you, help us to let go and to follow you. And so with our hands open, we ask, O oh Spirit, that you would transform us.
each step of our journey, each season of our lives, as we learn to follow you. Amen.